you're seated, if you turn now to Psalm 13, the preaching of God's Word found in Psalm 13, verses 5 and 6. Psalm 13, verses 5 and 6, as we consider God's bountiful dealings with us. So it is, as we read earlier, we see again verse 5 and verse 6, but I have trusted in thy mercy. My heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. I will sing unto the Lord, because he hath dealt bountifully with me. The Christian knows what it is to express thanksgiving to God. And when it is exercised, there's little consideration of how it's come to pass. It seems to run swiftly among us. Our tongues move and our hearts are glad. But there are also seasons for the Christian when seasons of difficulty come. And it's as if we have to relearn the way of thanksgiving. And there's something of that in this psalm. As we noted in its reading, the first four verses, the majority of this psalm, are in various ways related to the hardship that is being experienced. And we ought to, as an aside, remember that it's the Lord who has given the psalms to His church for praise, which instructs us that we shouldn't be surprised when seasons of trial come, that it's far more than just a doctrine. But when the experience comes, it is, as Peter calls it elsewhere, a fiery trial. And yet, howsoever fiery it is, it is a trial that will most certainly for the Christian not only pass, but will pass having refined God's people and to have beautified them all the more. And you see this even in the psalm. Here the psalm begins, How long wilt thou forget me, O Lord? And it ends with, I will sing unto the Lord, because he hath dealt bountifully with me. It's in the same psalm. And there the transition is in verse 5. But I have trusted in thy mercy. We can teach our children, can't we? And other little ones that we are to walk by faith. We can speak such, such words so easily. And yet, when hard trials come, we realize, though it's a simple concept, it is of immense difficulty to walk by faith. Because when in the midst of the hurricane of assaults that plague the Christian's life of whatever sort, bodily, emotionally, relationally, whatever it may be, spiritually, it's difficult, is it not, to lift, as it were, our gaze from the here and now, to the promise of God. And yet, that's precisely what takes place by the psalmist. But I have trusted in thy mercy. My heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. What you have before you is the exercise of faith unto rejoicing. Notice the language that he's trusting in God's mercy, his goodness, his kindness unto us. And it moves him so that his heart, he says, shall rejoice. Children, you'll understand the notion of this because the Hebrew that is there translated shall rejoice 
has to do with spinning. And we love to see children in their excitement to spin around and, as it were, to dance with excitement. And that's what's being expressed of the psalmist's heart. The heart will be so moved, it cannot stay put, it cannot stay still. Parents at times pull out their hair trying to teach their children to sit still. No, no, don't get up yet. No, no, don't get up yet. And they fidget and they tap and they move and they bustle. They can't, as it were, sit still. That's what's being expressed of the heart of the psalmist. It can't remain where it is. It must break forth into praise. And this is what happens. My heart shall rejoice in the, thy salvation. That deliverance promise, that help guaranteed. I will find rejoicing in it. And this then will bring, as he says, the singing unto the Lord because of His bountiful dealing. The words dealt bountifully means that He's dealt fully with. It's an interesting word. It's used of mothers in the Old Testament who have done all that's needed for their children so that now they're weaned. All the care of that initial phase of life is completed. It's fulfilled. It's dealt with. And this is here being expressed not of a mother caring for her child, bringing her, him or her through that next stage, but it's speaking of the Lord who does all that is needed for our soul's rejoicing. And so it is, as we see, that the Lord's rich dealings with us are the cause and the motive for our great praise of His name. Now, before we go further, it's good for us to see that the Scriptures do testify elsewhere that God deals richly with us. You can see this in a number of places. Notice, for instance, in Psalm 116, a similar expression, in fact, a parallel expression is made use of in Psalm 116 and there at verse 7. Here the psalmist speaking to his own soul, Return unto thy rest, O my soul, for the Lord hath dealt bountifully with thee. The Lord has fully cared for you. You can see something of this in a different light in John's Gospel in the opening chapter, John chapter 1, when it speaks most beautifully of what it is the believer receives by and from Christ Jesus. John 1 and verse 16, when we read, and of His fullness, that is of Christ's fullness, have all we received and grace for grace. We've received of His fullness. His riches are given, as it were, to us. And you can see a parallel thought expressed by the Apostle in Colossians and chapter 2. When in verse 3, he says, In whom, that is in Christ, are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And in the same chapter, verses 9 and 10, In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. We could multiply instances different 
as it were, angles to discern just how fully God has dealt with every individual believer and all the church together. There is not a believer, whatever their circumstances, temporally speaking, who does not have the full measure of Christ opened unto them. There is not a believer who does not have access to that which is described here as all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. There is not a believer who does not have that fulfillment of being complete because in having Christ, the believer has every blessing that is held forth. Consider then three things that would lead us in the Lord's mercy to praise Him more fully. Firstly, the Lord's blessings, or perhaps the Lord's riches. Secondly, the Lord's dealings. And thirdly, the Lord's praise. The Lord's riches, the Lord's dealings, and the Lord's praise. Well, consider then the Lord's riches. And if we stop to think of this for a moment, who among us could begin to quantify, to measure out, and comprehensively to list the riches of God? Because God owns all things. It's a rather petty thing when men are compared to one another. We hear sometimes, well, this person is a billionaire. And not just a billionaire, but a large number of billions are ascribed to his name. This is the most rich person in the present generation. Or historically, this person, if you added in all manner of inflation and so on, would be the richest person in all history. But brethren, think of this. What is their wealth compared to the whole world? And what is their wealth compared to the whole universe? What is their wealth compared to all things? The richest in this world is impoverished compared to God. And so when we start to think of God's riches, we have need to think deeply upon this truth. God possesses all. Everything we look at is His. All is under His perfect control. And we can think as well, not just materially, but think of what Christ says at the Great Commission. All power, all authority in heaven and in earth is given unto me. It's mine. I reign as king, not over some petty kingdom. Our king is the king of heaven and earth. He reigns over all that is. Everywhere we look, He bears absolute, perfect authority. This is one reason we can go to anyone in sin and say, you must repent. You are demanded to lay down your rebellion. And they in their blindness say, well, who are you? And we rightly say, well, we're nothing. Apart from the fact that we come in the name of Christ, who is the King. We have no hesitation to go to the President and say, listen, You get all this earful about politics. Let me tell you something more important. Let me tell you something more important than right wing, left wing, middle, whatever else. You have need by the King of heaven and earth to repent. He calls it. 
He demands it. He's come preaching the kingdom of God. And he demands, without any qualification, that all men everywhere repent. Why so? Because among his riches, he bears all authority. Well, we could continue to enumerate various ways of looking at his riches. But brethren, remember the context. Psalmist is troubled and in affliction. And it's often the case, isn't it, that our context makes us see what is truly rich. Think of this for a moment. If a man was in the desert and was on the verge of dying of thirst, would he choose gold or a cup of water? Some clever one might say, well, he might take the gold to buy a cup of water. Well, at that moment, what would he want? He could care not for gold. What good would that do for him? But if you came with a cup of water, that would be true wealth to him. Brethren, the Lord's riches are best perceived by the one who is in the midst of difficulties. Because here notice where the riches are. What has the psalmist trusted in? It's in God's mercy. His mercy. It's here that riches are discovered. The world doesn't care about it because the world has misjudged true wealth. This is part of the grand transformation that takes place in the believer. When we talk about them being converted, that's a comprehensive statement. It's not just that they're converted from the state of death into the state of life, but their minds are transformed. They start to see things in a new light. They're no longer impressed with how much money's in the bank account. They're no longer astounded by this and that and the other thing because they've come to see where true riches are. And so it is with the psalmist. He discovers the mine wherein is the vein of true gold. And it is God's mercy. Brethren, this is what Satan and our own remaining flesh causes us to set aside. Because we think riches would come if we had more wealth, if we had this friend, if we had that provision. And keeps us in a state of darkness from discovering the light of God's mercy. Psalm 31 verse 7, the psalmist says, I will be glad and rejoice in thy mercy. Thou hast considered my trouble. Thou hast known my soul in adversities. When you're brought to feel the depth of agony through trial, there's one treasure chest you want opened. And it's the assurance of God's kindness. It is the certainty that God's love is real. It's the assurance that God truly does remember he truly does know. Think of how this is expressed as the longing of those who have ever experienced trial. You can see it illustrated for us in Mark's Gospel and chapter 10, there at verse 47. What is it that is cried out? What is it that is desired by blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, 
who sat by the highway side begging. He hears that it was Jesus of Nazareth, and he began to cry out and say, Jesus, thou Son of David, have mercy on me. This is the mother load of all blessings, that Christ would have compassion upon me. If I'm assured of that, then I'm assured of every other blessing imaginable. I'm able to be brought to say, if I know He is full of mercy to me, that though He should say this trial will go on, yet now I've discovered the treasury that will give my soul the wealth it needs to live by faith in the midst of the trial. And this is a thing that is covered up by unbelief. It's the thing that Satan would throw the blanket over the light that shines. And he plants these seeds in our minds thinking, God's not merciful to you. Oh, it's true. He's merciful to others. Look how they smile. He's merciful to others. Look how their bodies are healthy. He's merciful to others because look how their families carry on. But He's not merciful to you because look at your misery. Brethren, here the Bible is reminding us God is merciful. What does God proclaim of Himself that is of the bedrock of our hope? It's there recorded in Exodus 34. Moses had said, show me your glory. God is saying, listen, if I showed you my glory, be consumed. No man can see my glory and live, but this is what I'll do. I'll put you in a cleft of the rock. I'll cover you with my hand. I'll pass by and I'll proclaim my name. And then I'll let you see, as it were, my back parts. But what is it the Lord passes by and proclaims? Verse 6 of Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Think of this. When God is to proclaim Himself to His servant, He leads with the clear and repeated testimony of His mercy. It's true that each of these words has a little bit different nuance, but all of them are bound up in the notion of God's goodness. He comes and He says, Oh Moses, you can't see all my glory, but I'll tell you what you need to know. You need, you must know this, that I, your God, Jehovah, your God, I am merciful and gracious. He proclaims it. He proclaims it of Himself. He holds it forth to His people. And is this not something that we need to remind ourselves of again and again? Is it not the very thing that is often withheld from our believing minds, this truth? It's a thing that's challenged. It's a thing that we wish to cast dispersions upon that the Lord is merciful. It's interesting, isn't it? In our age, 
when men have embraced a form of antinomianism and so-called mature Christians cannot so much as rattle off the Ten Commandments, that they also miss out on the great embeddings of mercy in the Decalogue. How does the Decalogue begin? It doesn't begin with the first commandment. It begins, rather, with God speaking these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. The preface lays down the fountainhead of all obedience. I am your God who has been merciful to you. This is sufficient to answer all those who would say, listen, under the Old Testament, people had to merit their obedience or merit their salvation by their works, clearly not having read the Ten Commandments. Because it testifies of God first being gracious and then giving them guidance unto obedience, which, by the way, is the same thing throughout all of Scripture. God shows mercy and grace. By grace are you saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. For you are His workmanship, listen, created in Christ unto good works. God's grace leads to obedience. And brethren, you're in the midst of trial, and God's grace is, as it were, being challenged. It's no wonder that your obedience loses a step. It's no wonder that you become frustrated and embittered and your zeal becomes quenched and your love cools. And you can do all that you want to say, well, I ought to be doing this and ought to be doing that. But you've lost, as it were, that which motivates and gives life to obedience because you've lost the conscious exercise of faith upon the mercy of God. That if once we have this treasure chest open to us, it's then that we're able to glean all that our souls need to walk forth rejoicing in Him. There's much more that could be said of this, but remember, the treasury open to us is the assurance of His mercy. Think of what's said of Christ. We have not a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. What does Satan say to you in your trials? No one knows what it feels like to suffer like you suffer. You're in isolation. Not even God Himself knows. What is that but to rip out the pages of Scripture, to throw them on the fire, and find us taking the fuel and laying it on more to burn it up? Christ was in all points tempted like as we. Christ suffered immeasurably more torment than you or I ever suffer. Christ is a sympathetic and compassionate high priest to all His people. And when those doubts come in, understand what's going on. What Satan's doing is he's, as it were, slamming the cell upon your soul. And what's needed is for you to rediscover the truth of the Lord's mercy. This comprises the chest of His treasures to us. The assurance that He cares for us. The Lord is my shepherd. 
that we can sing it in faith is the beginning of all rejoicing. Well, we press on. His mercy leads to His salvation. And so it is, my heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. The word includes all manner of deliverances. Do you remember Hannah, the opening of 1 Samuel, who was much in grief because her womb was closed? And that man of God looked upon her as in her grief her mouth did move, but no words came out, and he reproves her as if she were drunken, and says, oh, it's not so. My heart is grieved right now. And then we find in the next chapter, the Lord answers, and what does she do? She rejoices in the salvation of God. The Lord delivered her from this temporal and weighty trial that was upon her. Brethren, we ought not to overlook this. Temporal trials are real avenues of affliction. In fact, it's impossible to think of circumstances where we are tried without some temporality being brought to bear upon us. So think of it. We lose a job. Our souls, they all manner of worries. Why? Because of a temporal loss. Our spouse gets a disease and we spin out in all manner of anxiety. Why? Because of a temporal issue. A relationship explodes and our souls become enshrouded in darkness. Why? Because something in this world that is time-bound has taken place. Whereas we surely rejoice in that ultimate deliverance and salvation, yet brethren, the temporal deliverances merit as well praise to God. Here we are brought upon the sickbed and we improve and gain health. We ought to praise God for that. Here we come near unto death. The Lord delivers us and brings us to life. We ought to give thanks to God for that. Here a relationship that has been ruined by our sin, by their sin, by both sin. And God heals it. The Lord delivers us. Here is an enemy seeking our demise. The Lord delivers us. We give thanks to Him. He delivers temporally. There are spiritual trials as well that He delivers us from. Conviction is such a trial. You come face to face with your sin, your soul's going to be exercised. We don't mean by that paper, you know, here's my sin. But when the consciousness of your soul lays hold of the reality that I have profaned God's holy name, that can spin our soul out of control. Conviction consumes us. And were it not for the Lord's mercy, we would all become our own self-murderer because of conviction. It is the most reasonable thing for a man without hope to take his own life. Because there's no hope. None. When you see Judas Iscariot in the silver back to those who purchased the treasonable offense of betraying the Lord Jesus Christ and going out, he hangs himself. You see the hopelessness of one without 
faith. Brethren, what Judas had discovered is his sin is sin against God. Oh, how easily we say, Lord, I've sinned against you and forgive me and so on. But when once the Lord opens up our eyes and causes us to see sin, then is our soul tested. What's it tested in? Am I now willing to trust the blood and righteousness of Christ as my peace? And God be praised that He ever delivers us from it. David knew this, of course, in Psalm 51, when it was that he had sinned both in committing adultery with Bathsheba and in causing the murder of Bathsheba's husband. And he says in verse 11, Cast me not away from thy presence. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. Do you remember David? Nathan comes to him and says, Listen, I've got to tell you something. This man who had one lamb, another had many, took the man's lamb, left him without anything. David says, That man should die. And Nathan looks at David in the eye and says, David, you're that man. You deserve death. David doesn't say, Well, come on, we're all forgiven by grace through faith. This isn't a big deal. He plunges into the world of conviction. He's now face to face with his rebellion against God. And when people make confession trite and simplistic, they misrepresent to souls the way of hope. David now, in the midst of the death and the agonizing crucible of his conviction, pleads with God, Oh, restore to me the joy of thy salvation. This is, of course, linked to that eternal deliverance, the grand salvation, which we know most frequently in the Scriptures, by grace are you saved through faith. You're delivered by God's grace through faith. Brethren, if you have the assurance of God's mercy and the assurance and even the experience of His salvation. You have the treasury of God's riches opened unto you. More quickly then, notice secondly, the Lord's dealings. You can think of this in a couple of ways. Firstly, to others. And what a joy it is for us to look upon the Lord's delivering of others, His mercy to others. We can walk through the hall of faith as recorded in all of Scripture, and particularly in Hebrews chapter 11. And we meet with Noah and the Lord delivering him. We meet with Abraham and the Lord delivering him. And Joseph and Moses and Sarah and a host of others who are mentioned only by their actions. And it's a great encouragement. The Lord shows mercy to those in trial. He delivers them. And even they who are not delivered from the temporal trial are yet delivered by faith unto a a greater and a better resurrection. Oh, we rejoice in this. To walk through, as it were, the museum of the Lord's treasury displayed to others. But notice the text. It doesn't say because He hath dealt bountifully with others. 
It says, because he hath dealt bountifully with me, brethren, there's a wing in the museum of God's mercy with your name on it. We can look at the workings of God in mercy toward Moses. We can look at it toward David. We can look at it toward Paul. We can look at all of these things and yet ignore that there is a wing with our name on it that says the Lord's mercies toward me. Isn't this the case in our trials? We magnify our misery. We zoom into it and look at it at the elemental level. We look at it as it were under the microscope. We enlarge every facet of it. We turn it over. We look at it this way. We turn it over again. Look at it the other way. And all the while we zoom out and we minimize the Lord's mercies toward us. We zoom in to see the pain. We zoom zoom in to see the trial. But we zoom out so as not to see the Lord's mercies. The psalmist comes and he says, He hath dealt bountifully with me. The same one who in truth and sincerity is saying, How long wilt thou forget me, O Lord? is now remembering the Lord has dealt bountifully with me. The Lord has been rich in mercy to me. Not so for you, if a Christian? Is it not so for you, if a believer, that God has dealt, not will deal, but has dealt bountifully with you? Has He not shown mercy? Has He not shown great mercy to you? You say, well... My trial's heavy and hard, so it is. But is not God's mercy firm and sure also? Has He not, times that you have forgotten, delivered you temporally? Were there not times in the midst of pain that you cried out for relief and now the pain's not there? Are there not times when you were worried about finances and the Lord met every issue and has provided Are there not times that you can remember when you were on the verge of great anxiety and the Lord caused it to fly away and He delivered you from your troubles? Were there not times that you can look temporally and recount, God has delivered me from those trials? Are there not ways that you can look spiritually at your life and see God has been merciful to me here. He's been merciful to me there. He's been merciful to me again. If you've ever been brought to look upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you have had the greatest mercy shown to you. He's given you life everlasting. He's given you fellowship with His beloved Son. He's given you the pardon of sin. Brethren, Where are you in your trials? Where are you in your hardships, in your sorrows, in your pain, in your agony? You say, you've just said it. I'm in my agony. I'm in my misery. Brethren, you misjudge because you're united to Christ. And Christ is seated in heaven. That's where you are. Your identity is bound up with Christ. 
Paul says it so simply, so clearly. Being risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with Him in glory. Your life is bound up secure in Christ. That's where you are. You say, but I still experience torment here. You do. But that doesn't undercut the truth that you're united to Christ. That doesn't undo the binding of grace of your soul to Him. You have Christ Jesus. Think of this for a moment. The trials you face are in many ways replicated by unbelievers. We often misjudge and we get, as it were, blinders on and we think, woe is me, I'm the only one suffering. But we can also have blinders to think that only the Christian suffers. Brethren, there are godless men who suffer. They suffer immeasurably in this world. But you know the differences between them and you? They have, consider this for a moment, they have no hope. You only have hope. They have zero in their account. You have unending riches at your ready employment. Why? Because they don't have Christ, but you do. They don't have the access to divine treasures in Christ, but it's open to you. You're already united to Him. You're already in Him. He is already supplying you now what is needed not only to be sustained and to eke out an existence, but to flourish in the most contrary times and seasons that men would wonder and say, look how that one bears fruit. And the world is brought to say, tell us, what is it that gives you hope in the midst of affliction? Because it doesn't make sense to us. Your body is riddled with pain. Your relationships are destroyed. You have no finances. You have nothing in this world that amasses to anything that the world would desire. But there you are rejoicing. There you are giving thanks to God. There you are beaming with praise, brethren. I mentioned visiting brethren in Nuevo Laredo of a lady of faith who herself opened the door to her son having been hanged. And there in the worship of God, her face beaming with delight in God. The world would look at that and say, what a fool. But she's the one who's wise because she knows where there is hope. It's in Christ Jesus. And what she has, you have. Because you have Christ Jesus. You have unending treasures of grace and love and assurance. And brethren, treasures that are not only sufficient for this life, 
but will never run out through all endless eternity. And they are yours given to you freely by Christ our Savior. You, whatever your troubles are, have cause to say, the Lord has dealt bountifully with me. Say it in the night seasons of your soul. Say it when your soul is crying out in agony. Say it because it's true. It's not making up a truth as nonsense of psychobabble that gives nothing of any help to the soul. It's professing the truth of Christ. The Lord has dealt bountifully with me. And when the world comes in and Satan says, you're a fool. Look at your life. You say, no. I look at Christ. And Christ has given me Himself. What does this do? Well, it brings us finally to the Lord's praise. His merciful dealings stir our soul. This is what the psalmist says. My heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. Oh, what a pitiable thing for a professed Christian, particularly one who professes to know much the grace of God better than others, ever to be in a state when their soul is not exuberant in the praise of God. Because they have the riches of Christ opened, and there they're looking, as it were, at the dust of their feet. But when it is their eyes turn to look at the treasures of Christ, which are not just displayed as in a museum, you go to various places, you can go to Edinburgh, and you can go through the castle, and there you get on a person conveyor and there you pass by the crown jewels of Scotland and you look at it, you have to get back in the line and go again and look and back in the line and go again and look. And if you were to reach out, as it were, break through and take that, you'd be arrested. But think of this for a moment. Something far superior than the jewels of a royal lineage have been given to you because the jewels of the royal king of heaven and earth have been given to you. They're yours to enjoy. Yours to live upon. Ought this not to stir our souls? That as the Hebrew indicates, would spin our souls with excitement for Him? You can see this in a parallel expression in Psalm 45. When the psalmist, meditating upon Christ, You see the connection, doubtlessly, that his heart is indicting a good matter. It is in the Hebrew, it's boiling over. It's bubbling up. It can't be contained because he speaks of the things which I have made touching the King. He's turned his eyes to gaze upon his King. To consider the beauty of Christ. It is much desired that in our congregation there would be much discussion about many points of doctrine and practice and government and worship. But brethren, God keep us from emphasizing all other things above Christ. 
that we would be more speaking about the beauties of Christ than anything else. It's lamentable, isn't it? That we can go through a whole Lord's Day and we can speak about this practice and this article and this truth and that thing and yet never speak to one another about the beauties of Christ. It's no wonder that we sort of struggle through our lives if we're not full of meditating upon the beauties of our Savior. But it is also no wonder that when one is speaking about Christ, that all they can speak about is Christ. That all they testify of is Christ. And so then it unites all doctrine and practice and worship into this glorious hub, this comprehensive, exhaustive truth that goes through all that is in Scripture and is Christ. Oh, you want to talk about doctrine? Let me tell you about Christ and the truth of Him. Let me tell you about worship and why it's important to Him and how it expresses Him and how He uses it for us. You want to talk about godly living? Well, let me tell you about union and communion with Christ and how this flows out unto Him. We can fool ourselves into thinking that we have matured when we only have gathered an academic understanding of this practice and of that doctrine. If it does not flow through Christ, it is not Christian. Whatever else it is. It may be biblical, It may be right, but it's not, as it were, the full of life truth bound up in the person of Christ. We often become those who are just going through, as it were, the statistics of an athlete. Oh, they're six foot five. They weigh 230 pounds. They have a right arm that is extended this long, and they have this skill and that skill, and so on. But there's no real delight. We're just some sort of mind that's going through all of these truths that are there, but it only stirs in our brains and never penetrates to our hearts and causes us to delight and rejoice in God. My heart shall rejoice. And what is it then that a heart rejoicing leads to? I will sing. It's interesting, isn't it? The heart that rejoices sings unto the Lord. The heart that rejoicing isn't first going to others and saying, you're wrong here, you're wrong there, this is why I'm right, this is my view, this is your view, this is that view, this is that church, this is the other church, this is our church, this is that confession, there's another confession, there's a book, this author, that author, and so on whatever else that is, and to whatever extent those things are needed and beneficial, that's not the heart rejoicing in God. Because the heart that rejoices uses the tongue to sing praise to Christ Jesus. It leads from a heart rejoicing unto the worship of Christ. Consider Paul and Silas, Acts 16, you know the story. They're bound in prison. And what are they doing? Well, you're wrong about this doctrine. Let me get your attention, jailer. This is off. That's wrong. And so on. And those unbelieving Jews doing all of these things and so on. They're singing unto God. They're praising God. Why? 
Well, we can tell you why it's not. It's not because of their earthly circumstances. They didn't just get an update on their bank account saying, listen, you've got all this money now. They didn't just get a text from their friends saying, listen, this is now yours. You've got the job. You've got this. You've got that. They're suffering in prison, but they're rejoicing. Why? Because they're fixed upon Christ. Christ actually gives this to us in Luke chapter 6 when He testifies of the very experience that Paul and Silas would come to experience themselves. Blessed are ye when men shall separate you from their company and shall reproach you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice ye in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward in heaven is great in heaven. For in like manner did their fathers unto the prophets. He was orienting their thoughts to the treasures of Christ, and they thus rejoiced in Him. Brethren, as we come to close, is there not for us some cause of considering our own rejoicing or lack thereof? Honestly, look back at the last week and ask yourself this question. Have I praised God with rejoicing? Many things that you did do. Doubtlessly, you read God's Word. Doubtlessly, you went about singing. Doubtlessly, you prayed and so on. You talked with others. But you know whether or not this is true, that your heart rejoiced in the salvation of God? If it hasn't been so, we can say there are two possible reasons. Either God isn't merciful, or you've lost sight of His mercy. You know the only answer. God is merciful. We speak to the believer. God is full of love to His people. You say, but where's the proof? You want proof? Consider again what Christ has done. In this is the love of God manifested. That God sent His only begotten Son for us. God is full of mercy. There may be seasons of trial and heartache that endure and carry on. But the question that's asked in the trial is this. Do you believe His Word or do you believe your pain? Here, the psalmist in pain is brought to trust in God's mercy. So what is the need if ever we should rejoice? Understand this. Here's the need. Not that our circumstances change, though we will give thanks when and if that happens. Our need is to return to trusting in His mercy. That's what's needed. We think, if you remove this thorn, then I'll rejoice. Paul thought that. 
Remove the thorn of my side, and then I'll serve you with rejoicing. And he got the response three times in a row. My grace. Hear it? My grace is sufficient for thee. What's God saying to Paul? It's my mercy, Paul, you need. It's not the removal of the thorn. It's not the change of your circumstances. It's compassion, care, goodness, and love to you. That's sufficient. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they come up to the fiery furnace. It's heated so much that the attendants there are consumed. And it's in the fire that the king looks and says, were there not three we threw in, but now I see a fourth like unto the Son of God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the trial had the treasure. And brethren, there's nothing different for every Christian. In the trial, you have the treasure of the certainty of God's love, mercy, grace, and salvation. So here then is your calling and mine. It is to consider well, deeply, clearly the bounty of goodness, love, and mercy He's shown to you. Yes, you'll be tempted to say yes, but, yes, but, yes, but. But go through the long list of weighty mercies that are both already shown and promised to you. And then do due diligence and consider them one by one. And as you do, pray, O God, as these are what is true, give me faith to trust Your mercy. Knowing that I, not He, not she, not they, but I shall rejoice in Thy salvation. Brethren, God is true. May God give us faith. Stand with me then for prayer.